Welcome to the Post-Capitalism Podcast. I'm Chris Wallard. In this episode, we'll be talking about subjects including debt, meaningless jobs, precarity, and the anxiety that results from turning people into brands. My guest is Neil Vallely, a political and social theorist and author of the recently published book, Utilitarianism, Neoliberalism and the Production of Uselessness, and who this year is taking up a Rutherford Foundation postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. We'll discuss the psychological impacts of capitalism and the need for a new vocabulary and new ways of organising as we look to create a different future. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Neil, to start, I was wondering if you could give us some details about your own background and maybe a few insights into the inspiration behind your book on futilitarianism. Um, yeah, thanks, Chris. So I am originally from Northern Ireland. I came out to New Zealand in my PhD in 2012. I've been based here ever since. So I finished my PhD in 2015. Uh, I based at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And 2016, they went through a big wave of humanities cuts to, to staff in the humanities division. That got me thinking about, on the one hand, my own kind of future of being a humanities PhD graduate and seeing all these people with full-time jobs getting um, getting sacked, thinking, how the hell am I going to get a job? Um, but also, th- I, I started thinking thinking about how have the humanities come to be considered useless, and not simply want to defend that uselessness, as, as many people have done, since it's a, we should study these things because they are inherently valuable, um, but rather to think about how, how things like humanities or other things come to be understood as useless definition of uselessness is tied up in um, kind of wider social, political, cultural practices. Um, so the book emerged from that thinking. And the more I started looking into it, the more I realized that this this idea of uselessness and this this sense of futility, this feeling of futility is really widespread in, in our time. And I, combining it with my own knowledge, seeing that actually futility is deeply enmeshed in kind of history of capitalism and particularly with the kind of neoliberal mutation that futility has become central to the way that capitalism operates. That's a good frame for what we're going to talk about in this interview and I'd like to start with the concept of futility itself partly because that's the central idea of your book but also as I think it's a useful way to describe the system that we're all limping along under. So as you said futility is obviously the central concept of the book and for me it, it operates in the same way as a term like precarity but albeit, I think futility captures experiences of more people than precarity. So I, I feel like futility names the perversity of the situation. Um, and then the concept of futilitarianism, which is the, the name of the book, is really an attempt to lay the, the theoretical foundations to, to try and escape from the situation. So first of all, it's to show that this idea of futility maximization, um, the idea that we individually choose the most useful option on all our kind of decision making. Is, is embedded within the history of capitalism. Um, and to all intents and purposes, it has always been a kind of a, a sham of a, of a, a kind of cop out of an ethical theory, but it has helped capitalism maintain its kind of dominant power structures on, on some level. But I think more importantly, futilitarianism is an attempt to show that these feelings of futility that come out of this perverse situation the sense that we're all trapped in a cycle of, of maximizing utility that only leads to these to greater unhappiness, greater collective unhappiness. That this is not a defect of our individual characters. And this is what neoliberalism wants us to believe. 
It wants us to think of the systemic failures of these systemic problems as reflections of our inability to adapt, our inability to be resilient, our inability to, to be entrepreneurial or creative. But rather than that, I want us to show that, that actually this sense of futility is an intended effect of, of contemporary capitalism. And what I want to do, therefore, with utilitarianism is instead of directing this experience inwards to see um, our own defects within that system, because we then we end up buying into these narratives of, of self-help and self-optimization that become so central. Futilitarianism actually directs that feeling out into the world, away from the self, and arguing that futility is an experience that we all share one way or another. And this is not to de- deny that some people experience much more futility than others, but it is a kind of shared experience, and it can be the basis of what I call, in the conclusion of the book, becoming common, which is basically a way to 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 lay a new the the groundwork for a new collective subject to emerge that, that can actually confront and um, the futility of, of contemporary capitalism. That's a really good introduction, and I imagine we're going to be coming back to a lot of those themes. But I wanted to pause here for a moment to ask if what we're talking about with futility is a psychological phenomenon or more about the system's practical results, or maybe a bit of both. I think that's a really, really great way of framing it. And I I, I don't actually phrase it like that in the book, but that's exactly, I think, what I'm trying to get at, is that this book is about the psychological effect of the practice of utility maximization on our both our individual and our kind of social and collective well-being. The main question that really drives, I think, the theory of the book is what happens to a society when so many people are forced to maximize utility on an individual level without any connection of that that utility maximization being connected to some form of common good. What kind of society emerges under those conditions? If we're all just making ourselves as useful as possible, but there's no sense that that is connected to a shared experience. And I argue basically that utilitarianism is the consequence of that. And it manifests, as you kind of point out there, in, in a whole state of psych- psychological experiences, which is summed up in the mental health epidemic of, of our era. You know, it's the practical results of the operating kind of principles of contemporary capitalism are well documented, particularly in the last couple of decades with you know, austerity, even rising inequalities, the prioritization of work, so on and so forth. But I think what I'm trying to do with the idea of utilitarianism, which I think you're kind of intimating towards there, is that it's as much about the lived experience of contemporary capitalism as it is about the practical results of contemporary capitalism. They're, they're completely interlinked. But what I, I think I think probably the main focus of my my approach is on that lived experience, the kind of everyday experience, and the way it makes us feel. Do you think I'd be right in suggesting that precarity is a deliberate feature of the system rather than a bug that there's a real interest in fixing? I very much agree with that. And I think precarity and what I describe as utility are deeply interlinked. And I, I see utility as almost... A mutation of precarity, of futility, is what emerges when precarity becomes the kind of dominant social condition for long periods of time. Because there's a, there is a kind of, there's always been a sense of temporariness associated with precarity. Particularly, this is what the liberal governments would would have us believe is that 
you know, it's all about flexibility and adaptability. And we work on these kind of short-term casual contracts, but eventually the, the temporariness of it will abate and out of it, we will eventually kind of have some sort of permanence. But what I think has become really clear, and especially kind of post-2008, is that that precarity has actually become a kind of long-term experience, even though it's the experience of the temporary. And what I argue is that that actually mutates into futility after time. I think futility also captures much more of the, the, as you call, the kind of psychology of modern capitalism. That it actually captures a lot of people who would not think of themselves as precarious. So these could be people working in full-time jobs or with assets or with secure relationships, secure citizenships, secure legal rights, so on and so forth, who we might not describe as precarious. And yet they might well identify with a sense of futility on some level. Either they may be working a job that they think this is pointless. They may be politically active, but think there's no way that I can, my individual actions are making no difference here. So it's a sense that futility taps into, crosses many kind of social, cultural, economic divides. And there's no doubt that the more the more precarious they are, the more your your experience of futility is kind of crippling and demeaning and holds you pinned down basically by capitalism. Um, whereas for some others, the sense of futility can just be a thing that kind of hovers in the background of life, it kind of haunts our everyday experience, but doesn't actually um, manifest itself in everything that we do. So there's obviously differing experiences, different levels of futility. But there is, I think, a common shared experience there that can be tapped into in some way. Um, and I think precarity has shown that there's there's ways to collectivize around the term precarity and lots of, kind of strikes and movements that built around the, uh, the shared experience of precarity. And I think a shared experience of futility can actually take a next step and involve more and more people across different social cultural divides to collectivize against the As anyone who's listened to the show before could tell you, I have the intellectual sophistication of a toddler. And when I was reading your book, it took me to perhaps the most basic question anyone can ever ask. Why? Why is endless growth important if normal people aren't benefiting? Why is it important to beat last month's growth targets? Why is any of it really important? Yeah, I think that's such such an interesting way of framing it. And I think partly why... And lots of people have said to me about the book, that actually explains a lot about how I feel about the world and something. And I think it is that question of why, why are we doing this? And I feel that myself and my own self, why am even, why am I writing a book? You know, one's asked me to do it. You know, why am I trying to get a full-time academic job? Or why am I trying to maximize my utility? Um, I, I see it with students, for instance, all the time. Why would you go to university? Probably used to be quite simple question to answer and um, whereas now many of them certainly here in New Zealand I imagine it's the same elsewhere there's a sense of one I should go to university because that's the kind of rite of passage two the, we're told that you must have a university degree to get a job but many, so many of them are sitting there why am I doing this I'm in so much debt um, I look at the job market I think well what kind of job am I going to get I look at the housing market I think how the hell am I ever going to afford a house and all the while, there's someone standing at the front, you know, telling you that we must understanding Chaucer is be central to. And I 
not to in any way suggest that we shouldn't be understanding Chaucer. I studied medieval and early modern literature. But but essentially, this disconnect, I guess what I'm getting there, is a disconnect between what students are learning at university um, and what, what lecturers and teachers are trying to do at university and what what university is, is doing for them. Um, and there is a deep question of why, other than I have no other choice to do this. And that really forms part of this, what I, what I define as this entrapment that I see with futility, is that we are forced to maximize utility because there's no other choice. And yet the whole time we're thinking, but what is the outcome of this? What are the consequences? What are the benefits of this? Not only just for myself, but for everyone. Yeah, the this, this sense of futility that that spreads, um, I think is really present, particularly in a, a younger generation. And, and this book is very much kind of anthem for a younger generation. I've definitely asked myself why a man with a voice as high as mine is trying to do a podcast, but I guess that's what post-production's for. Drifting back on topic, I wanted to ask you about utilitarianism as a concept itself and why it's become such a problem in that it underpins so many elements of capitalism as we know it. So it's a term that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of, a term that actually lots of people kind of use on, on, on some level in everyday life. But it's perhaps the origins of it might not be as common as, um, as the way it's used. So it's a moder- its modern interpretation uh, is built on the ideas of um, Jeremy Bentham, who's uh, an English philosopher, social reformer in the late 18th, early 19th century. He described what he called the principle of utility, which is essentially property of any object that, that produces pleasure over pain. And eventually this grew into to the idea of the greatest happiness principle. So you know, later utilitarian philosophers like John Stuart Mill came up with the idea of the greatest happiness principle, which many people I'm sure have heard of, which effectively states that the most moral course of action is the one that ma- uh, maximizes the most happiness for the most number of people. So that's kind of short summation of utilitarian thought. Uh, I, you know, Chapter one of the book goes into it in a lot more detail, but... And this is probably the point where I'm supposed to tell people, oh, you should, if you want to know more, you should go and read these stickers. But um, I would never advise anyone to go and read Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> um, if you are going to read anything about Jeremy Bentham, I'd read uh, Marx. Uh, in Capital, Marx has a great footnote about Jeremy Bentham that's short, um, but basically calls him uh, the arch philistine, uh, the genius of bourgeois stupidity, um, a purely English phenomenon. So he really goes to town. But utilitarian ideas then became intermingled in, in development of economic science in the 19th century. So classical and then neoclassical economists adopted forms of utilitarian thinking, especially through this idea of what they call rational utility maximizer, and seeing the human as a rational utility maximizer. So this is this idea that we every decision we make, every economic decision we make, we're weighing up the costs and benefits, and we rationally choose the right option, which... I'm sure you might admit, Chris, I'm sure maybe this doesn't correspond with how I often make my economic decision. But even though it doesn't, it seems quite absurd that that's how we actually act, it's amazing how that has actually be, became, become central to the way that economists think the world. Uh, in fact, I think it's Werner Stark, who was the, the editor of Bentham's Collective Works, um, which I can think of a worse job. But he... Um, he described David Ricardo, the, um, the English classical economist, and Bentham as 
and flesh of one flesh and blood of one blood because they shared the belief that man is essentially a selfish animal and that it's useless to fight fight that selfishness. So you can see how this idea of self-interest lies at the heart of utilitarianism. So what I get at in, in, in the book and questioning utilitarianism is two what I see as fundamental problems. And the first is how we go about measuring utility. Bentham never really comes up with a great measuring tool for this, other than he eventually lands on money as the best judge of utility. So there's an obvious crossover here between utilitarianism and capitalism. Because if money equals utility, the most moral course of action is is the pursuit of money. And interestingly, the way that utilitarianism thinks of society, he thinks of society as a collection of individuals. So the danger here is that individuals will seek the accumulation of money on an individual level, believing this somehow leads to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And then the second question, which again, utilitarianism never really adequately contends to, is that who gets to judge utility? That utility is not this kind of neutral concept. Bentham seems to think it is, but it's actually deeply enmeshed in the power structures of a society. And it was clear in Bentham's era, in the era of kind of colonization, that it was the, the ruling classes that, that held the power to judge utility. And in our era, the ruling classes to tell us what is the most useful course of action. And we all take that on an individual level, internalize it, and believe that that's the most useful course of action for all of us. Your analysis of where utilitarianism and capitalism meet seems like a perfect description to me of the Reaganite and Thatcherite approach where our economic lives took on an even harder edge in the 1980s. What are some of the consequences of that shift, do you think? I spent a bit of time in the book looking at that. It is the the translation of neoliberal ideas into actual political policy. But I guess what precedes that period is is kind of post-war social democracy, and there is at least a sense um, within post-war social democracy, and there are obvious problems with it, but at least a sense of a, a of a idea of trying to to protect the common good or trying to protect, trying to generate a sense of the greatest happiness principle in a way that had never really been done before in capitalism. And basically neoliberalism comes along and it, it dismantles that, that sense. It dismantles the social state. And we see, obviously, vast privatization. And also the promotion of personal responsibility becomes really central. And we see that in Ronald Reagan's inaugural speech in 1981. He says, um, if no one is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? So we see this real shift there towards personal responsibility, that individuals are responsible for their own well-being, rather than, say, the government or the state in some shape or form. And so then, and we see that then the, the kind of most famous expression is under Thatcher in the UK, where she said there's no such thing as society. So we see here the dismantling of, of the idea of society, the idea that we live in a kind of collective world towards the sense, the sense that actually the world is just full of all individuals competing against one another for various slices of the pie. And so basically, if 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 there is no such thing as society, then this practice of ma- maximizing utility, which is supposed to lead towards this kind of greatest happiness of the greatest number, as utilitarian philosophers told us. But if there's no such thing as society, then there's no longer any kind of structures that can, can bring together these pursuits of utility maximization in a way that might produce a social good. Instead, we get just trapped in the logic of self-interest. So what happens with neoliberalism and under particularly Reaganite and Thatcherite neoliberalism, and then that extends into more left, kind of left-wing neoliberalism in the 1990s, is that um, 
the economic privatization of neoliberalism is coupled with a, a subjective privatization. So neoliberalism enables capitalism to demand utility maximization from every individual without actually having to accommodate for the general happiness principle. Um, because we're all supposed to be responsible for our own well-being. So we see a flip from utilitarianism to futilitarianism. That's always been nascent within utilitarianism, but it's neoliberalism that simply, neoliberalism that unleashes it by getting rid of any sense that the state has a responsibility to our collective happiness. Some people have suggested that a silver lining of the COVID pandemic might be a sort of prefigurative planting for some post-capitalist thought. One example might be, say, the CARES Act in the United States, where the US government sent out checks to the entire population, which could be a prototype for some form of universal basic income. In your book, you question that, though. But why do you think it misses the mark? That's a very um, good question um, and strikes at a problem of writing a book about something that is happening when that book will be released in 12 months. <laughs> and I think if I wrote parts of that chapter now, I, I probably wouldn't be quite as pessimistic as I was then, because there are actually signs, I think particularly under Biden's administration, that, that, that actually some of this kind of neoliberal logic is subsiding on, on some shape or form. But um, I guess what I do get at is that the, the, there is also a danger that the responses to the pandemic will reinforce kind of neoliberal logic or, or lead to a mutation of neoliberal logic. There's a really excellent book edited by William Callison and, and Zachary Manfredi called Mutant Neoliberalism, in which they develop this theory, the, the metaphor of the mutants of, uh, in relation to neoliberalism. Because at post-2008, when it looked like neoliberalism was dead, uh, this metaphor developed called zombie neoliberalism, in the sense that neoliberalism was clearly dead, but it was living on as a kind of living dead force. Um, whereas the mutant, uh, the mutant metaphor actually allows for a different understanding that it's not that neoliberalism died in 2008, that it mutated into something else. And that mutation, uh, if, if we simply think neoliberalism as a fixed form, then we actually miss some of these kind of new mutations into even a more authoritarian kind of system. And we see that post-2008, that neoliberalism, some have called it a kind of punitive term. Christian Laval and uh, Pierre Dargaud call it a war against the population, This what they call a new neoliberalism. So it's clear that, that post-2008 neoliberalism mutated into something even more kind of dominating and aggressive. There is the fear that with pandemic that might be the, the consequences that it, that it could that it could in some way lead to an even more aggressive form of austerity. But I am becoming more optimistic without being completely optimistic in the sense that pandemic is different to say 2008 because it it really does reveal the fact that we are interdependent on one another that our our health is is dependent on the health of others that we cannot escape that relationality with others, that we cannot res- escape our um, responsibility to others, um, even though many, many of our governments are trying to do so. But it does it does reveal a kind of shared relationality at the heart of humanity, that even that the well-being of people in other parts of the world can impact the well-being of myself in this part of the world. But I do see a hope in, in the sense that 
the pandemic might precipitate a greater awareness of our shared charity, greater awareness that we actually, the world is a better place when all of us are secure. I, t- I touch on the CARES Act in that chapter in the book, um, which is brought in under Trump, because to show that actually that version of the CARES Act benefits uh, rich people in the US um, over the actual daily lives of individual citizens. I also talk a little bit about uh, a turn that happened in Australia called the Jobs Ready Graduate Package, which immediately came in at the start of the pandemic, which was aimed at, uh, as the government said, towards generating, to trying to regenerate the economy in the aftermath of the pandemic. What this policy did was um, hike up fees for certain university courses, particularly humanities courses and arts courses, went up to 12 grand a course or something. Fees or uh, other more functional, um, vocational forms of education were reduced, were kind of half. That's another danger with the pandemic, that we see this greater turn towards ability maximizing regimes. And we see a turn, a further turn away from critical thinking that can actually help us think beyond these, this logic. And that's a fear, I guess I have. Mentioning universities reminds me of another element of futility, the pervasiveness of debt. By loading young people down with debt in order to get an education, you're basically telling them you'll have to work for years and years just to get back to financial zero. And there's nothing more futile than that. Yeah, definitely. And, and debt, I, uh, when I was working around the book, I, I read a lot around debt and I thought a lot around debt. And it doesn't actually make it that much into the book. But it's somewhere that I um, certainly intend in my research to go in the aftermath because I think, as you said, like the debt is yeah, the, the idea of, of trying to work yourself back to zero is really the complete definition of futility. Um, I was teaching a, a paper last year called Abolition in the 21st Century, and we looked at different forms of abolitionist politics. But one week we looked at student debt abolition and unsurprisingly students were very very excited about it and it's not obviously no not just students everyone's in there um, but just the sense of lots of them trying to get through their university degree as quickly as possible so they didn't have to spend as much money on rent or on food and so on and so forth debt i think is the governing logic of utilitarianism it's the the consequence of of a society that demands maximum utility maximization without having to guarantee any sense of of collective well-being and i think i talk about a lot in the book in in, i think chapter two of the book i I dissect the the theory of human capital which i think has become really central to to how debt becomes so ubiquitous Um, because under human capital everything that we do becomes reimagined as an, an investment in ourselves so, for instance, education becomes, rather than something that you are right, that you have as a citizen, that the state should provide, education becomes an investment in your future human capital, in your future ability to earn, and so on and so forth. So the, the price you have to pay for having education is taking on debt, with the hope, with the idea that in the future you'll be able to pay off that debt, and it will have been a good investment. But you must take on the risk yourself. If you think it's a bad investment, then don't do it. So debt, debt is justified under those conditions. If we think of everything we do as an investment in ourselves, then debt is the price that we have to pay for that. 
But in a society where work is precarious, where labor market is is extremely volatile, where house prices are beyond belief, and if you own a house or own assets over the last 34 years, you're in such a strong position, then then debt becomes this kind of albatross that hangs around our neck and we'll never, never be able to get rid of. And the only way we can is to get into further debt. And it's this kind of re- recurring cycle. Um, so I think, yeah, debt, um, there's some really great work on debt, obviously, like David Graeber's book. Um, and Tim DeMutzio's a really good book called debt, debt as Power that I think shows the way that debt serves not only to, to prop up the kind of financial and economic system of contemporary capitalism, but also to distribute a kind of subjective experience that, that that pins us down, that makes us docile subjects on some level, always, always feeling indebted to someone or something. One outcome of the subjects we've been discussing is the pressure on us as individuals to engage in what you call self-branding, especially on social media. On the one hand, to me, that points at a kind of maximal self-expression, but on the other, it's a kind of bland sameness too. But where does this idea fit in with your theory? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and, and a fundamental aspect of the book and, and, and an effect of what I just discussed with human capital theory becoming dominant way of thinking about how human beings, human beings behave in our age. Michel Foucault, his definition of human capital, not altogether um, critical definition of human capital, as we said, but, but he described that under that idea People become entrepreneurs of the self. So the self becomes a kind of permanent kind of commercial project, something that needs to be sold and marketed and invested in. And so I take from Foucault's idea of entrepreneurs of the self, I, I turn towards the ideas of a German media theorist, Bing Chul Han, who um, has this really helpful idea that, that we're no longer subjects, we're projects. And we're always refashioning and reshaping ourselves and not this is not a kind of criticism of individuals doing that it's a sense that we are forced to do that it's the only it's one of the one of the main ways that we can maintain some sort of individual survival is to turn ourselves into to brands and to enter this kind of marketplace of human relations and some brands will do well some brands will will not and yet we're all competing for this kind of limited attention so essentially, human relations becomes a kind of market, and we're all, on some level, having to sell ourselves. And Wendy Brown makes a really nice point, the kind of theorist of neoliberalism. She says that under neoliberalism, selling our soul becomes quotidian. That's, that's all we have to do. It's our only choice. And what I argue in the book is that, that this shift towards seeing the self as a brand, and therefore as in competition with other brands, leads to to a deep sense of paranoia, what I call par- a paranoid community. So this is summed up, I, I find a, um, a quote by Jeff Bezos, who talk, who's talking about self-branding. And he says, he means it in a very positive way, but he says, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. All that can lead to is a deep sense of paranoia, because the very thing is that you can never know what people are saying about you in the room. So the idea of what he's getting at there is that you have to market yourself in such a way that people talk about you positively, but you can never know that people will talk about you positively. So this, for me, is one of the most succinct definitions of paranoia that represents the way it spreads in, in the 21st century. And then if we are all operating as, as brands, 
then our relationships with other people are, are characterized by need and distrust at the same time. So we need others to buy into our brand. So we, we need their attention. But then we also just trust that they might have bought into our brand or bought into our brand in an authentic way. Because that stems from, you know, on the flip side of Bezos's quote is that we can never know what others are really thinking about us. Um, so if our sense of self is, is dependent on others buying into this image that we've portrayed, um, then the inability to really know what others are thinking is, is really crippling um, and can only lead to, to a sense of paranoia. Um, and this, I think um, I, I touch on the book, overlaps a bit with Marx has an idea of what he calls the kind of illusory community of, of capitalism. So freedom really only exists for the ruling classes, but in real community, individuals, rather than attaining their freedom by dissociating from others or competing with others, it's actually through their associations with others that freedom emerges. And this is really at odds with, with how we uh, interact with others as brands, as under the logic of neoliberalism. Um, because freedom is understood as freedom from others rather than as freedom with others. Um, and as soon as we think about freedom as associated as, uh, as being distinct from others, then, then this creates space, breathing space for paranoia. I was just thinking that Jeff Bezos might actually know what you say when he leaves the room if there's an echo speaker in it, which is a vaguely terrifying prospect. Staying on the social media theme, I also feel like it encourages a certain type of flatness and a degree of futility too. It rewards certain types of personalities that generate popularity and also creates a generic mass of content. Whether it's an important news story or COVID misinformation or a tedious post from your aunt, information is kind of presented in the same small boxes and that feels extremely flat and futile to me. That's a really, really good way of describing it, a kind of flatness that, that, that I think digital communication uh, precipitates. Um, yeah, the, 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 and it, the great kind of irony of the difference being such a kind of prominent aspect of our era. Yeah, if we're all trying to be different, we're all doing it in the same way, you know, through social media or so on and so forth. So actually, it's our, our attempts to be different actually makes us on some level all the same. And I think that again goes back to that idea of freedom, the idea that, that rather than thinking of freedom as freedom from others, that it's actually freedom emerges from our kind of concrete relations with, with others. And I think digital communication, I think it really underpins the sense of futility that we experience. And social media is both a producer and consumer of content all at the same time. And it really makes, because that content is being produced at such a mass accelerated rate it makes it really impossible to to actually listen or to digest anything and um, so i come up with the, the term in the book what i call symbolic indigestion that as a, that emerges as a result of this kind of mass acceleration of digital communication that because there's so much content as you call it that our capacity to actually digest those words and create meaning requires time and there is no there are there is no time so, so we we end up in this state of indigestion in the sense that we, we we don't have the time to digest words to create a meaning out of it so we get this kind of flat digital sphere where words start to lose their kind of capacity to to make meaning i think a couple two or three years ago the council here declared the need in a climate emergency and this idea in the sense that it really doesn't feel like we're living in an emergency if everything becomes described as an emergency then the term emergency 
sort of loses its capacity to affect people. So we declared Dunedin in a climate emergency, and yet everyone just continues to say, oh, okay, we're, we're living in an emergency. So, so there's this kind of sense that language, because of social media, because of acceleration, language starts to, all language becomes the same. So either everything is a crisis or nothing is a crisis all at the same time. And I think this is this has really severe political ramifications in the sense that it, it limits our capacity to to raise certain issues to a kind of um, higher level. Will Davies has written really well about this. He talks about this, that society now, politics has now become a kind of perpetual referendum, that the capacity of our, our political capacity has been reduced to whether we say yes or no um, on, on certain things. And he says um, the kind of infantilization of, of this process. Uh, and he makes this really lovely point where he says, you know, a toddler either simply opens their mouth or closes their mouth if they want food. And it's kind of <laughs> how our political sphere has come. since so we go yes or no. And that's kind of it. That's the, the height of our kind of political nuance. That it really is an effect of, of social media, the, the like button, the it really reduces complexity. I think the term you use there, flatness, leads to a kind of hyper-accelerated mass constant experience, and yet it's an experience that's just the same all the time. The point about the dynamics of political discourse leads into another interesting part of your book, where you talk about Extinction Rebellion and Occupy Wall Street and the human rights movement. All those things can feel very positive, but you suggest there's an element of neoliberalism underpinning each of them. What do you think the specific problems are with each of those movements? Yeah, I think that, again, that's a really important question. And I, I should preface it by saying that I also broadly agree that on, on many levels, these are great developments. But so many of them still are hamstrung by neoliberal rationality and, and a complete devotion to, to the individual and the protection of autonomy. So Extinction Rebellion, and I think it's getting better at this, but initially it, it really did step away from, from the political. So there was that kind of famous example of, I think, someone at Extinction Rebellion rally um, with a sign that says socialism or extinction. Um, and the, the I think the official Extinction Rebellion UK Twitter account coming out and saying this sign doesn't represent us. We don't have a political position. And I think such like that that is a politics that's eventually destined to futility. At some point, you're going to have to confront the kind of system that we live in if we really are going to to solve the climate crisis. It's not going to happen outside of, of confronting capitalism. And Occupy was obviously an extremely powerful and hopeful movement. Um, the framing of we are the 99% was extremely powerful expression of a collective identity that I think is really can be really formative and representative of, of a movement that can emerge again, especially in the wake of the pandemic. But ultimately Jody Dean um, has a really great story that I think sums up what un undermined um, the Occupy movement. Um, and she she tells the story of being at a rally in New York and, and being slowly kind of encircled by the police. And this sense of, of collective energy that everyone felt that we are the 99%. We, we are a collective subject. We are unified together. And someone stood up through the, the and used the people's microphone, which became synonymous with the Occupy movement, and said, you know, we can take this park, we can take the police, so on and so forth. But then eventually said, 
but it's your own individual decision. Your autonomy is guaranteed. And she said, as soon as that entered the discussion, burst the balloon, and eventually it all sort of petered out at the specific rally, and everyone kind of went their separate ways. And so it seemed that Occupy, at the very moment that it seemed to name a kind of collective subject, it was still deeply committed to, to the protection of, of individualism that is really central to neoliberalism. And then the human rights movement, I briefly touched on this in the book, but the real you know, tour de force in, in this area is Jessica White's book, The Morals of the Market. Um, and she really shows in there how this kind of simultaneous rise of all these really deep discussions about human rights after the Second World War around the relationship between, say, individual and civil rights and collective and economic rights. So the idea that we're well, under the law, but we also have equal rights to housing and healthcare and education. How the neoliberals were able to use that language to, to protect individual rights, to actually undermine collective and social rights. The, right, the idea that, that collective and social rights are actually undermining individual freedom became central to the neoliberal project. And actually, the way that human rights has operated since the 1980s, um, actually since the 1970s, um, is that it has dominantly focused on individual protection and divorced those rights from economic and, and collective rights. The human rights movement see themselves as often as apolitical and actually see politics as, as something that gets in the way of human rights. Um, and with that suspicion of politics, it's something that human rights movements share with neoliberals. So I think that's where I, I'd see some of these movements as, as potentially good developments, but it must be divorced from a kind of neoliberal project that underpins them. I've definitely told people this in the past, so I'm guilty of what we're about to talk about. But thinking about the common good, or indeed common goods, can feel like a way that we might be able to move towards a more progressive future. What have I been getting wrong there? Um, it's not uh, that, and that's I, I do approach that in the final chapter. And it's, it's not so much that the idea of the common good isn't a good basis to start with. It's that, that this idea of the common good has always been uh, deeply implicated in kind of Western moral philosophy, and therefore in kind of Western, particularly colonial ideas. Uh, Chris, again, Pierre Dardot and Christian Laval have, have written about this in in very instructive ways. They say that one, we should avoid at all costs speaking of common goods or even the common good because the common is not a good in, in that kind of commodity sense. The common is not an object of, of our wills. It's not a possession that we can kind of hold. Um, it's actually something that emerges from our concrete social relations. It's kind of spontaneous. So one of my, my, one of my suspicions towards the common goods is that it always denotes a naming of what is good, that, that you can never really come to a conclusion of common goods without somehow defining what we think of as good. And in doing so, the, the, those definitions get tied up in kind of West, in, in kind of power structures of society, that, that it's often the people who are in power get to define what we think of as good. So for instance, Bentham defining utility as money, you can easily see how many people in our society would see money as a as a, as a common good. Whereas if you think of common good as something that arises from our kind of shared experience, from our, our, our collective endeavours, there's a sense that the common good emerges organically and, and is created through those relations. So there, there's no way of kind of defining that good 
before it happens. And there's obviously dangers to that. That concrete social relations between people can produce things that are abhorrent. And we've seen that particularly in, in our age. It's not that this idea of common good is, is not as detached from kind of political organization, but I but I I have a suspicion towards the idea of goods being defined before we actually do the practical work of, of creating that good. We mentioned at the top of the episode the idea of becoming common as a potential next step as we try and escape the utilitarian trap. How would you define that idea and why do you think it's so important? So becoming common I see as a process that confronts the individualization of, of our society that's happened under neoliberalism, a sense that if such a process of individualization has occurred, how do we actually think about a world shared in common? And because of this process of individualization, I argue that we have to go through a process of becoming common again, that we have to, it's not simply that we we go from being these kind of individual units to being a kind of shared consciousness, that we actually have to find a way of experiencing things together, of sharing a sense of the world together, or sharing this, an experience of the world together. And my argument, um, which I've kind of touched on so far in our discussion, is futility, the experience of futility can, can be one way of enacting a process of becoming common. In the way that the experience of precarity has enabled a process of becoming common for some movement, people re- see in one another a shared experience of precarity. And my argument, as I touched on earlier, is that futility can extend beyond precarity to encompass more and more people. To, to, to start a process of, of people becoming common to one another, of realizing that we share an experience in different ways, but that actually that experience comes from the same system. It's not an effect of our own individual decision-making. Um, that actually futility is, is a logical response to the conditions of contemporary capitalism. And if we can see that in one another, then we can start a process of becoming common in a way that can to actually build a kind of collective subject that can might be able to confront these conditions. We talked earlier as well about the importance of language, and that's another thing that you tease out in the book as being something we need to rethink. So what sort of language should we be looking to develop? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and a, a kind of harder question to answer on, on some level. Um, and I guess what I'm getting at there with the new language is building on what we've talked about with the flatness of of digital communication, where language, certain words become kind of flattened out and lose all affect. So this new language, and I'm not quite sure what that language is, and I I think I mean language there more on a kind of, rather than an actual language, I don't want us all to start talking Esperanto, but um, a, a language that develops out of the process of what I described as becoming common. That once we start to realize that we have the shared shared experience of futility, we might start to be develop a language around that shared experience that defines a way of being in the world under contemporary capitalism that doesn't revert to the kind of tropes that capitalism gives us about responsibility or autonomy or about self-help and so on and so forth. And we start to find a new language in, in through relationality, um, and there's gr- some great philosophers working on the idea of relationality, which I guess in one way would act as a kind of starting point of, of a new language. I'm thinking there are people like Judith Butler, and um, I have a colleague here, Otago Simone Drickle, whose work is absolutely amazing. 
So I guess when I'm saying new language there, I'm, I'm again, I'm not, it's not a prescriptive term. I'm not thinking we need to speak this language. It's simply that in the through the process of becoming common to one another, a new language will hopefully develop that is different to the language that neoliberalism wants us to speak. And um, what that language actually looks like, I'm not quite sure. Whether it's an actual language is it's not the same thing. It's basically a, a kind of it's more a kind of shared experience, a shared way of articulating the, the experience futility that so many of us feel. Do you think the trade union movement could be an example of giving people a shared vocabulary to talk about their experiences, as well as a common idea of what progress might look like? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think that that actually is kind of more succinctly sums up what I was struggling to say in the last answer. Effectively, yeah, but the, yeah, you're right, the union movement became a way to articulate the shared experience of workers in a way that that actually gave that workers a sense of power. Whereas if we're all just talking as individuals, if we're all content producers and so on and so forth, there's no way that that language can can articulate a shared experience. I mean, this is one of the kind of dark side of social media is that language becomes inflicting and often violent towards others rather than emerging from a kind of shared experience with others. You know, when I'm saying this kind of process becoming common, I'm not thinking of particularly new ways that we actually share, uh, uh, politicize that common. You know, the, the re-emergence of union movement is an extremely positive thing because it, it is, the union movement is a way of articulating a shared experience. If futility can somehow be incorporated into that, to, to those structures like a union, then that's, I think, an extremely positive development that maybe the idea of futility can be a way to articulate the demands of workers and so on and so forth. So I'm not particularly thinking of innovative ways of, of politicizing collective action. Um, I am I, I see things like the labor movement as an extremely important avenue going forward for the left. And that if the idea of futility can become somehow being be used to articulate the experience of workers, then I think that's a really positive development. So I, I see futility as a way of trying to renew some of these movements that already existed but have declined under neoliberalism. Are there any other practical activities or steps we could be taking as we try and push back against the neoliberal model? Yeah, well, one, as I said, is the kind of re- renewal of, of some of these traditional political movements like unions. But I think perhaps not so much a practicable way, but 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 a, one way is to think of trying to wrestle the idea of utility away from capitalism. And I don't know how what that, that looks like different for, for everyone, but capitalism wants us to think that utility can only emerge under the conditions of capitalism. But the reality is that, that what we understand as useful or as pleasurable does not have to be developed under capitalism, does not have to emerge from capitalism. In fact, many of the things that we do find pleasurable and useful kind of take place outside of capitalism. So I think one way is to try and wrestle utility away from capitalism, to try and find it manifest in uh, endeavours that occur outside capitalist relation. Um, But also more kind of strikes, the union movement we talked about, um, We've seen real great way of feminist movements using strikes, the, the feminism for 99 cents development, even feminist movements around precarity, precarious ala deriva. We're also seeing more discussions of the commons, and we talked a little bit about the, the common good before, but 
the, the re-emergence of the idea of the commons, of, of common own, ownership. So uh, particularly things like public commons partnerships, um, there's lots of researchers looking into that, the idea that, that things can be commonly owned together and therefore we can decide in a kind of democratic sense what, what is the most useful way that this thing that we own should go forward rather than thinking the most useful way for this, for this thing that we, uh, this business that we own is to make more money, to actually see that, that actually utility can be defined not by profit margins, but by the impact it has on a social community, on on the kind of general well-being of a of a, a group of people, the impact it has on people's everyday lives, rather than simply the kind of bottom line of, of profit. Um, so that's I guess in terms of practical activity, um, ways of wrestling utility away from from its simple definition as money towards more practical things like social well-being, collective ownership, and so on and so forth. My last question is another big and knotty one. As we talk to people about these issues, whether that's precarity or futile jobs or climate change, are we better off focusing on their real-life situations rather than addressing massive abstract externalities and things that can feel way beyond their control? Yeah, I think it's a really, really good question. And and what I was hoping to do with the book, and I think others are doing it in certain ways, is it is that that language of of say climate change or even around pandemic or yeah say say climate science is we, we all well maybe many people don't accept the science but if we do accept the science that doesn't mean that we can understand that science or we don't understand the microbiology of viruses and so on and so forth and sometimes these kind of big massive global catastrophes that seem to be facing us are so can seem so overwhelming and and so you can feel so small and and futile in in response to them but actually trying to connect these big global issues to experiences in our everyday life to show that that these are not disconnected in some shape or form that that our everyday experiences of utility are connected to these wider kind of futile endeavors that are happening at a kind of big global level that is is I, I think is a really important step to this process of becoming common is to to show that yeah that, that these everyday experiences the way we experience utility uh, as individuals in our everyday life is connected to the way that other people experience utility and on top of that is connected to these global issues especially around climate and so on and so forth so yeah I think that's one of the main aims I want I was trying to do with, with the book is to try and bridge that gap between discussions of these huge uh, global issues, our experience of everyday life. Because I think in bridging that gap, bridging that gap is essential to to actually doing something about it. Neil, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate it too. That's it for this episode. More details about Neil Vallely and the subjects we discussed are available on his episode page at postcapitalismpodcast.com. Our music is by Chocolat Billy. More information about them is also available on our website. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at info at postcapitalismpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>